I wonder if anyone's been following over the past couple of weeks what's been happening in a small town in America called Wilmore, Kentucky. Uh, there's a Christian university there called Asbury University. And a couple of weeks ago, one of their routine worship services that the students are required to go to, um, it, it, it was a fairly routine and ordinary service, except that it never really ended. After the service concluded and everyone was sent on their way back to their classes and whatnot, a small group of students stayed behind to pray. And then other students started coming back. And then more students were requesting to leave their classes to go back to this gathering to pray and worship and hear from the Word. And this worship continued nonstop for the past two weeks like two weeks of nonstop worship and repentance and confession and seeking the Lord's face. Wilmore's a small town, about 3,000, and they've since been visited by upwards of 100,000 people, some from all over the world, uh, people who are coming who are hungry to hear from God and to be in His presence, coming to be part of this awakening, this renewal. And listen, revivals happen. Throughout history, some of these uh, moments and spaces where God's Spirit does incredible work in the spiritual awakening in the lives of His people. It's what Jonathan Edwards calls an acceleration and intensification of the normal work of the Holy Spirit. And the English missionary Norman Grubb described revival as when the roof comes off and the walls come down. In other words, when the roof comes off of our lives and there's this awareness of God and His holiness, particularly and this sort of vertical dimension is just palpable. But the second thing that happens is the walls come down suddenly with our brothers and sisters. We become transparent and very humble, and we ask for forgiveness and reconciliation. Both of those dimensions are very strong. John Piper says this kind of renewal and awakening is the sovereign and concentrated work of God in which a group of God's people are lifted out of spiritual indifference and worldliness into conviction of sin and an earnest desire for more of God and His Word, joyful worship, renewed commitment to mission. You feel that God has moved here, right? It's this fresh outpouring of God's life-giving Spirit on His people. You think of Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3 where he prays that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Revival is God doing that in a deeper and more intense, accelerated way in a group of his people. And this happens. It's real. You can read about revivals in, in history. You can talk to people who have been part of revivals. It's, it's, it's kind of hard to kind of rate revivals, right? It's not like a one to, one to ten kind of thing. And, and usually time will tell if renewal is genuine because there's, there's a spreading, there's a going forth, it spills out, that there's fruit. But it's amazing when God does this, when the roof comes off and the walls come down. 
And what we see happening in our text today in Nehemiah chapter 8 is a spiritual renewal, an awakening of some sort, a reviving of God's people. And my goal this morning is to unpack this and see what it looks like to some degree. Let's pray, uh, and then we'll look at the text. And God, we, uh, we thank you for uh, your love. Father, we thank you for sending us Jesus um, to make a way for us to draw near to you. Thank you that you are the God who draws near and we, we can know you uh, not just in, in uh, a cognitive kind of way, but with our senses. We, 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 we are thirsty for you and we taste you and we cling to you and we feast. Lord, would you, would you open our eyes this morning and help us to see what it looks like when you visit and renew your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, let's dive into what's happening here. Hopefully you have your Bibles open to Nehemiah 8. Uh, some Bible scholars actually suggest that the chapter division should be a little bit earlier, at chapter 7, verse 73, because what we're looking at here is the, the people of God coming together. And But qu- quickly, some of you might be wondering, what about chapters 6 and 7? Well, we've only preached up to chapter 5 last week. Um, To put it bluntly, I'm simply making an executive decision to move to chapter 8 because we can, right? Because there's there's no hard and fast rules of of the way we do this. We usually preach expositionally through the Bible, just kind of book by book, chapter by chapter, but um, I I, I just feel called to go to chapter 8, partly because of what's going on in the world at this very moment. Um, But let me quickly give you a summary of chapters 6 and 7. Um, we, we actually nearly preached chapters 4, 5, and 6 in, in a single week because what you have in those three chapters is the building of the wall, right? Nehemiah has come partly to, to oversee that, that physical building project. But what you see in those chapters is alongside the building of the wall comes opposition. And, and in chapter 6, we simply have more opposition, a particular kind of opposition where you see a, a conspiracy against Nehemiah by guess who? That's right, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem again. And, and again, what they're trying to do is stoke up fear. That's what we saw uh, the opposition doing in chapter 4. And really the enemy is powerless. It's just empty threats. Just like Satan is ultimately powerless because Christ has defeated him on the cross, it's mostly antics of trying to create fear and and disunity. And and so it's more of that kind of opposition in chapter 6. And as usual, Nehemiah overcomes that opposition with prayer, right? By by remembering who God is, by knowing God's word, um, that's how he perseveres. And at the end of chapter 6, we see that the wall is finished, uh, and we get this great picture of, of faithfulness and perseverance in the face of opposition through prayer, through knowing God's word, by remembering that God fights for his people. And, and there's actually, a, I found, a comical voice uh, verse uh, in chapter 6, verse 16 that says, uh, it says, and when all our enemies heard of it, that the wall was built, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem for they perceived that this work had been accomplished by the help of our God, right? So the the tables are turned. The the, the fear is flipped back onto the enemies because they realize what Nehemiah said on the wall in chapter four is true. They, They realize, wow, their God actually does fight for them. 
And chapter 7 is actually very familiar because it's essentially nearly a copy and paste of Ezra chapter 2, which is this list of returned exiles. And the concern in that chapter is that, that what we have here is the genuine people of God. In the Old Testament sense, chapter 7 is saying these are actual Jews. These are those who have been set apart by God to be his people. This is the genuine people of God. And then verse 73 shows us that the priests and the Levites and the gatekeepers and the singers, the temple servants, and all of Israel lived in their towns. Um, There's not many actually living inside the city walls in Jerusalem just yet. But this is the scene. The the walls are up. The gates are in place. The, The city is secure. Now what? What comes next? The people. The restoration of God's people in God's city. Um, Later in chapter 11, we'll see the strategy for how they actually repopulate the city. It's pretty interesting. But but listen, the, the purpose of the walls being built was never just about the walls. The purpose was always to restore the people. The people are the purpose which has always been the goal in these, these physical rebuilding projects that we've been reading about. In the book of Ezra, it began with a physical building project, right? The, the altar being built and the temple being rebuilt. But that was so that the people could be rebuilt, right? So that Ezra could come and, and reinstate the Torah and teach the word to the people and help them to become obedient again. And, and the book of Nehemiah follows the exact same pattern. It begins with a physical building project, the walls being rebuilt. But, but the end goal was so that the, the, the people of God can be restored. And if you remember in, in Ezra chapter 1, verse 2, this was Nehemiah's primary concern all along, right? What does he ask his brothers when they visited him in Susa? He asked them, firstly, concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and then concerning the city. And they they tell him, hey, the people are in great trouble and shame, and the city is in ruins. The the walls are broken down. And so he he goes back and he rebuilds the walls, but but then what? After the walls are rebuilt, it's, it's time to get to his primary concern. It's time to restore the people. And what happens, and that happens in a very special way here in chapter 8, Right, the people are in their towns, and then in verse 1 it says, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. So let's stop there and, and see what's happening here. It says, All the people gathered. So, so that, that gathering, your, your New Testament mind should be thinking of what? This, this sounds like the church, doesn't it? This sounds like the assembly. The ecclesia, that here we have is the, the gathering of God's people. Now, what does it say next? It says they gathered as one man. So the people came in from the towns, the, the priests and the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers, this diverse group gathering as one man. And you've actually heard that phrase already back in Ezra chapter 3, when it says they gathered as one man to build the altar and to worship God. We have a worship service happening here. That, that phrase, one man, it's showing us the unity that they have, the, the unity of the people gathered. That they share this unity in their identity and in their desires. But you keep going. It says, all the people gathered as one man in the square before the water gate. So 
They're coming together in a physical place. It's a physical gathering. It's not just that they share a common identity and desires in kind of thought. They're coming together in a physical space to work these things out. And what we see happen is this spiritual renewal. And so what we're gonna look at this morning is just some of the markers of spiritual awakening. And one of the first things you see in renewals is the genuine people of God gathering in unity. And that's what you see in verse one, the genuine people of God defined in chapter seven, gathering together in unity in a physical space. There's a togetherness. They are sharing in this. They are pressing in together. The genuine people of God gathering together in unity. But that's not enough. Just gathering as a unified people isn't enough. There's more that's needed, and you, you see exactly what else is needed in the second half of verse one, and that is a hunger. There should be a wee list, David. There's, there's a hunger. They, they gather together, and they are hungry. And what are they hungry for? Let's read and see. It says, all the people gathered together as one man in the square, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. What's this book? It's, it, this is the, the, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, the Pentateuch that they had. The, the law of God says that the Lord had, had given or, or commanded. This is God's word. They're saying, bring us God's word. So what are they seeking? What, what are they hungry for? They're seeking the Lord's face. They are hungry to hear from God. Here's another marker of of renewal and awakening. It's when God's people are hungry to hear from him. So you, you, you have to ask yourself, why are they so hungry? Why are they so desperate to hear from God? And the, the, the simplest answer uh, is, be, I'm sorry. Okay, the, the, the simplest answer is because they, they, they understand and they, they know, to, they, they believe that, that God forms by his word, right? And because that's the message uh, all the way through their Bible so far, right? That, that, that God forms by his word. In Genesis, God creates, he forms the universe, how? By his word, by, by, by speaking, in the Exodus, at Mount Sinai, he forms Israel as his people by giving them his word. When they're eventually taken into captivity and into to exile because of their idolatry, God promises a new Exodus. He promises a new return from exile by his word. And God's word is what sets the exiles free from Babylon. They, they know that God forms by his word. And here they are, chapter eight, the now free, returned exiles, they're back in the land, the walls are rebuilt, and the people are looking to God's word to form them anew. You see, God shapes, and he defines, and he forms us by his word. And, and he continues to do that today. They, they understand that, and they say, Ezra, bring us the word. That They are hungry to hear from God. They're seeking his presence. In verse three, it says, when Ezra read it, all the ears of the people were attentive to the word. 
They're pressing in, they're attentive, they're hungry to hear from God. And so one might ask, why? Or maybe more importantly, how? Where did this hunger to hear from God come from? And you might ask that because you might be sitting there thinking, I want that hunger. I, 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 I don't have that hunger. I, I feel maybe a bit numb. How do you get this kind of hunger? Well, the Bible says a lot about hunger of God, and I don't have time to cover it all, but I think there's a, a couple things going on here. And the, the first reason that they desire God is because you were created with it, right? You, you, were, you were created in the image of God to enjoy the glory of God and to be satisfied only in Him. Lewis talks a lot about desire, doesn't he? He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And that's totally true. That You were made with this huge, intense Desire that only God can satisfy. That's why you feel discontent. That's why you feel frustration. That's why you feel anger or even depression when you try to satisfy that hunger with things of this world instead of God. You're created with that. But the second reason they have this, this, this level of desire that we see here is because this deep hunger is because God gives them that desire. In John chapter 6, there's this big section on hunger, and Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not be hungry. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But then he says in verse 44, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent, uh, who sent me draws him. So even in our hunger, even in our, our search for God, it, it's the Father who draws us. He calls us. He, he gives us that desire to, to, to hear from him and to know him. Man, some of you are here, and I know you, and I know your names, and you are present, and you are here in the gathering, and you're amongst the people, and you're, you're, you're hearing the word, and God is speaking, and you've heard it all. You've seen it in action, and I'm just waiting on him to persuade you. And I'm praying for you. I, I pray for you regularly by name. I'm praying that, that he will give you that, that, that final hunger so that you can surrender and come to Jesus and be satisfied eternally. Amen. So God has to work, right? He, he, he has to give us this hunger, but listen, the Bible is also clear that we play a part in getting hungry. So I, I, I don't read this chapter and get a sense that this is just out of nowhere. The, the, the people just spontaneously have this hunger that they never had before, that they didn't wake up with the day before, right? Because you, you can't read this section in isolation from the rest of the storyline. You must read this section in context of the wider story that's been playing out. So, so remember back to Ezra. Why was he sent? God chose Ezra because he was seeking the Lord 
because he was a man of prayer. He is a man who set his heart to study God's word and to do it and to teach it to others. Remember that in chapter seven? And Ezra was sent back for this purpose. And he has been here at this point for 13 years doing just that. 13 years of opening God's word and preaching to his people. So if, if you're asking yourself that question, they have such a hunger to hear from God's word, you, you can't ignore the 13 years of preparation of Ezra teaching the word. It's through the teaching of the word that they have a desire for the word. It's through the teaching and the hearing of the word that they have a desire for the word. It's through this, this years of 13 years of preparation, of regular reading and preaching of God's word that has brought them to this point of hunger. Listen to me, if, if, you're, if you're disappointed that you're not hungry like this, have patience. Have patience, friends. Our church isn't even 13 years old yet. And think of all that God's done, all that God's been doing. Have patience, family. When you're seeking that, that spiritual renewal and awakening, sometimes it takes years of preparation. Years of faithfully coming along and sitting under the word and being taught and listening and reading and singing. Stick in there, family. I, I believe firmly that God is using these years, yes, to form and shape us in the here and right now, but also to prepare us for something. Have patience. Um, John Tyson, he's a, uh, he's a pastor in New York City, and he was talking about, he's a, he's a big revival nerd, um, studied it, took his family on like a revival tour to these places where this has happened, um, and he has prayed for years for revival in New York City, um, and he was, I was listening to him talk recently, and he said, uh, one time when he was praying that, he, he just felt the Lord saying, stop praying for revival. And he was surprised by that, and so he kind of sought counsel uh, from a, a, a wise older brother, and this guy discerned, and he said, John, the reason is that God told you to stop praying that is because you're not ready. He said, if, if, if the Lord came in this way, it would crush you. And he encouraged him. He said, you need to, to build up the walls of your heart. You need to build up the walls of your heart or it will crush you. Sometimes there's years of preparation. Have patience, church. But here they are gathered together in unity. They're hungry to hear from God. They say, Ezra, bring us the word. And something special happens and, and God turns up. This is the next marker. You see, God tends to come where he's wanted. That's one of the markers of revival. He, he tends to come where he's wanted. Almost every great revival begins with a small number of hungry believers in a room praying and seeking God's face and listening for his voice and asking him to come. God comes where he's wanted. Can he break in when and where he wants? Absolutely. You think of Saul on the road to Damascus. Jesus turns up, just blinds him, and says, Paul, you're mine? Come on. 
He, he sets him on fire. Paul becomes the greatest church planter that ever's, uh, it's ever been. Uh, he writes half the New Testament with the power of the Holy Spirit. That happens, but, but generally, spiritual awakenings within a group of believers happens when the people are hungry to hear from God. Are you hungry to hear from him? They're hungry, Ezra brings the word, and, and something special happens. Look at what happens next. We're in verse two. Um, buckle up. Um, it says, so, so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand uh, what they, what they heard. So there's, there seems to be some kids there, some youth, some people who, who could understand. On the first day of the seventh month, verse three, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from the early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women who could understand uh, and those who could understand. And all the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra, the scribe, stood on a wooden platform that they had made for purpose and beside him stood these 14 other leaders. Verse five, and Ezra opened the book inside of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. Skip down to verse seven. And Jeshua and Bani and the rest of these other leaders, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Um, so from early morning until midday, so it's about six hours. The, the word is read to the people for six hours, probably not Ezra nonstop reading for six hours. That's an impossible task. But there's these other teachers and leaders who are probably reading too, who are going through the crowds to help the people to understand. They're, they're teaching the word, they're, they're making it clear, they're giving the sense of the meaning of the word, applying it. Why? So that the people could understand the reading. Six hours they're doing this. It's not an ordinary gathering, it seems like. Something special is happening. And again, notice that the ears of all the people were attentive during this time. No more complaining about 40, 50 minute sermons. Seriously, how, how distracted are we? How, how antsy are we? Something special is happening. They are pressing in, they're listening, they're eager, they're attentive for six hours of the word to be read and explained. They're hungry for God's word. They're, they're thirsty for righteousness. They're, they're desperate to hear from God and to understand what they hear. Do you see what they're doing? Here's another marker of this kind of renewal is they exalted the word. They exalted the word. Think about it. They were, they were hungry for God's word because they, they believe that God forms by his word. He speaks and that forms us. And so what do they do? They, they call Ezra to, to bring the word so that they can hear and they exalt the word. And you, can, you, you know this to be true because several reasons. They, they build this raised platform for the word to be read from. I think this was more than just we need to build something so everyone can see and hear. And, and we know that because of the, the response of the people around the platform. There's this exaltation of God's word. Uh, Derek Kidner, he points out, he says there's really something interesting, there's a really interesting contrast 
to the dedication of Solomon's temple, which was filled with glory and beauty, natural and supernatural, to overwhelm the worshipers. And here, the focus, apart from this wooden platform, was a scroll, or more accurately, what was written on it. You see, there's this exaltation of the word, which you even see continue today, like this room, this old Baptist church. It's not spectacular. It's a big box. It's a big square. There's nothing glamorous about it. There's, there's one feature, right? Just this, this high pulpit behind me stares up to it. And if you've been around for a little bit, you know we really do one thing from there. Let's read the word. And that's, that's a symbolic exalting of the word. But by doing that, we are symbolically saying what the people in Nehemiah believe to be true, that, that God's word is important, that, that God's word is authoritative, that, that everything we do underneath it is underneath the word. We believe it forms us. We believe it shapes us. We believe his word sanctifies us. Jesus prays in John 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. They exalted the word. It's also shown by the people standing during the reading that there's a reverence there. That's also, you see them being attentive. They were eager to understand the word. You see that the exaltation of the word, not a worship of the word, a worship of the author of the word. They, 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 they exalt the word, though. They elevate it. They, they regard it in high esteem. Therefore, they were attentive. Are you attentive to God's word? Are you hungry to hear from him, desperate to understand? Is that why you're here this morning? Did you wake up this morning thinking, I, I just need to hear from God. I just need to be with his people and be attentive. Do you believe what, what Paul said in 2 Timothy to be true when he said all scripture is breathed out by God? He breathed it out, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Do you believe that? It seems to be what these people believe to be true, and so they were hungry to gather and to hear God's word read, to hear it and to be taught and to understand it. Do you believe that? If you, if you did believe that to be true, what would it look like in your life? What would it look like in this gathering? What would it look like in the other parts of your life? Maybe when you're alone or when you're just with a few friends. Are you exalting the, world, the word in those times too? In those, those, maybe those kind of preparation times? Or does, does this just kind of sit and wait for you to pick it up on the way to church the next Sunday? Friends, God forms by his word. Be hungry to hear from him. So, so there's this exaltation of the word. It's not worship of the word. And we know that to be the case because verse six tells us what they worship. And you see their response to understanding the word. It says verse six, that Ezra blessed what did he bless? Not the word. He blessed the giver of the word. It says he blessed the Lord. 
the great God. That, that word blessed, it means to praise. It's, it's this expression of praising thankfulness. And blessing, it can be a little bit uh, confusing because there's two kinds of blessing. There's, in, the, in the Bible, there's almost two parties blessing. And there, there are times when God does the blessing, right? And, and he blesses us. And when he blesses us, we are helped, right? We are strengthened. We, we, we are made better off than we were before. But when, when it's flipped, when humans bless God, he's not helped, is he? He's not strengthened. He's not given anything that he didn't have before. He's not improved. Rather, our blessing is an expression of praising thankfulness. When we bless God, we don't increase his strength. We exclaim a gratitude and an admiration of it. We worship. And that's exactly what Ezra does. He, he blesses the Lord the, the great God, it says, this great God, you, you see his, his affections are expanding because his vision of God is expanding because of what he's just read from, the, from God's word. Let me say that again. His affections are enlarging because his vision of God is expanding because of what he's just read from God's word. You see, that's the response of the people as well. They, they answer and they say, amen, amen. So be it. We agree. Yes, yes. And then how do they respond? They, they worship. This, this physical response of worship, lifting up their hands, bowing their heads, worshiping God with their faces to the ground. There's this, this revival humility that's always there. And there's praise, there's gratitude, these physical outward responses of worship, proof that, that the roof has come off, right? The, and their awareness of God's holiness and might and his greatness just seems to be palpable. And the only appropriate response is worship. This is a response that came from their hunger for God to hear from him. And hearing his word read and taught and explain, expl, explained clearly, their affections were stirred and they worshiped God. That's why we preach the word. That's why we preach, right? Because it's the primary way of, of hearing God speak because it, it, it forms us and it, it corrects us and it trains us for righteousness and it makes us complete and equipped and because it leads us to worship him greatly. We see that he's this great God. This is, what understand, this is what happens when you hear and understand God's word. And here in Nehemiah, it's happening in a pretty intense way. You see, revival, renewal, awakening, it happens firstly when God's people gather together in unity and they're hungry but secondly, because they understood the word clearly, right? It's not just this emotional outpouring from nothingness. It's, it's not just positivity and, and good vibes. It's not because of anything other than a clear understanding of God's breathed out word. When God's spirit is poured out and the people understand what God is saying in his word, the roof comes off. And the walls come down, 
And that's when this, you see this corporate, passionate, physical response of worship. It's amazing. And you keep reading in verse 9, you see more of their response. It says, And Nehemiah, who is the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Why was their response to mourn and to weep? It's because anytime the roof comes off and you're suddenly aware of the holiness of God, that brings with it an awareness of your sinfulness. I wonder if what, come, if what has come into their minds is all the ways that they've turned from the Lord in the past. All, all the idolatry that made them be in captivity in the first place. All the, all the unfaithfulness, all the sin. And if you're at our Ash Wednesday service, you might have felt this a little bit. That, that heaviness, that, that, that weight There's this grief that comes with being aware of those things right next to a, a righteous and a holy God, isn't there? And, and listen, that's good and necessary. Unless you recognize that you are a sinner who has fallen short of the glory of God, you'll never come to him. You'll never hunger for him. You'll never be satisfied. You'll never be saved. A recognition of our guilt is necessary, but, but I think the point in this text that the teachers are making is that repentance, it leads not to feeling condemned and guilty. Repentance leads to joy. Recognize your guilt, yes, but, but don't stay there. Repentance leads to joy. They, they say gently and calmly, today's not the day for mourning and weeping. Today's the day for joy. I love that. Verse 10, then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and, and, and eat the fat, drink the fat, eat the fat and drink swi- sweet, sweet wine and, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Go celebrate. This is a joyous day. This is a time for, for feasting. Throw a party, right? Anytime wine is mentioned in the Bible, it's usually a symbol of joy. And I love, I love how uh, pastoral this scene is. And verse 11 says that the Levites calmed all the people, saying, be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And I read a, uh, an article in Christianity Today about the Asbury outpouring, and it described the the organizational element of that revival. It, it's, it's not just a madhouse. It, it's, it's there's structure, there, there's order. There, there are leaders leading and protecting and correcting. There's times when the leaders are saying, no, you're not gonna speak. You don't get a mic. Not anyone's just getting up with a word and, 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 and going for it. There's this gentle, humble correction going on. There's order. And you get a sense of that in those verses, don't you? The Levites are calming things, telling some folks to be quiet. Today's holy. Don't be grieved. Don't be afraid. 
folks grieving and mourning and weeping because of their sins, that's okay. But then you have these good teachers coming alongside people and saying, let me tell you why you can have joy. Let me, let me tell you why you don't have to mourn. This is Jeremiah 31 maybe coming true, right? In Jeremiah 31, God gives this word to his people. He says, I will gather my people from the farthest parts of the earth, and with, with weeping they shall come. But in verse 13, he says, but I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with goodness. This is what happens when God turns up. When he, when he gives us an understanding of who, he, of who he is, friends, he doesn't crush us. He revives your soul. He, he strengthens you. The joy of the Lord is your strength. That, that, that line that you've heard a million times, it reminds me of what Nehemiah told the people on the wall in, in chapter four, right? Our God fights for us. It's, it's not about you, right? It, it's not about how strong you are. We are weak. We, we are not able, but he is. He'll be strong. He, he, he's going to fight on our behalf. He will be your strength. That's where your joy is. It's not about what you bring to the table. Your joy is in his strength. Your joy is in what he has done for us, how he upholds us, how he empowers us, how he gives us every single thing we need. So rejoice. This is the, the correct response to spiritual renewal. Worship, joy, feasting. And did you notice compassion and generosity, right? The walls come down. To send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. Is there anyone in need? Take care of them. Send them some of what you have. In verse 12, the people, they do what they're told, and they, they went their way to eat and drink and to send portions, and it says to make great rejoicing. Why? Why are they making great rejoicing? It says because they had understood the words that were declared to them. There's a really important word in verse 10. I don't know if a general word, go. Go your way. Like you see that their, their, their response should include action. That they're not just being revived to sit in the square and sing. Yes, that, absolutely. But they're also being called to go. Go celebrate, go be generous, go be compassionate, let what's being stirred up in the gathering spread. Let it, let it spill out into your lives, into the streets, into your homes, into your workplaces. Isn't that cool? Go and celebrate and serve. Look after one another. Go make great rejoicing. To be part of your identities, part of what people see in you. Friends, when's the last time you rejoiced like this? When's the last time you rejoiced like this together because of a greater understanding of who God is, because of what he's been doing in your life. This should be the greatest, he should be the greatest, the greatest reason for rejoicing in your life, bar none. When's the last time you, you threw a
Some of you invited friends over to, to feast and to sit around a table and just share long into the night, maybe over a meal and a nice bottle of wine, what God has been doing in your life. How he's been answering your prayers. How he's been strengthening you lately. Are you making great rejoicing because of him in that way? What a, what a result of, as verse 12 says, the people understanding the words that were declared to them. They're, they're not celebrating, they're not feasting and rejoicing because the walls are complete. They're, they're not celebrating and rejoicing because the temple is rebuilt. And it wasn't because they had success over their enemies. Those are secondary reasons. That their primary reason for celebrating with great joy was because they had understood the words that God had spoken. That's what made the occasion so great. What you see here is a little glimmer a little flash of the New Testament in Jeremiah 31 maybe coming true. The, the, the new covenant that, that says, they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. That their joy is sparked, but by that promise possibly finally coming true. Are you hungry to hear from God, church? What a joyful response from hearing and understanding that which they were so hungry for, the word of God. And we're nearly finished here. Um, verse 13 to the end of the chapter, you see more response from the people. Um, let's read it and we'll be done. It says, on the second day, so the next day, the heads of the father's houses and of all the people with the priest and the Levites, they came together to Ezra the scribe in order to do what? They want more, to study the words of the law. And they had found it written in the law of the Lord uh, that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive and myrtle and palm and all these leafy trees to make booths as it is written. Um, I touched on this back in Ezra chapter three, um, this festival of booths, it was commanded by God uh, back in the book of Exodus, and it was this week-long observance where they were to make these little huts, <laughs> these, these little booths out of sticks and branches, and, and actually live in these booths for a week. And, and this was meant to help them to remember their time in the wilderness, right? So God brought them out of Egypt, and then they journeyed through the wilderness for 40 years, and they lived in tents and, and these temporary huts and so this is a, a symbolic festival of booths to help them remember that time and most importantly how God had sustained them during that time how God had had fought for them during that time how God had provided them with everything they needed during that time even food and drink like that's why God commanded them to observe the feast of booths it wasn't for God it was for them to help them remember and as they were studying the law there, they're reminded of this command. They realized we haven't been doing it, so what do they do? In verse 16, it says, so the people went out and brought them and, brought them and made booths for, for themselves, each of his own roof and the courts and the courts of the house of God and the square and all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in booths. From that, uh, for from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. So, what happened? They begin to obey God's commands. 
They start practicing his word again, right? So their, their response to this renewal, it wasn't just emotional. Emotion's really important. It, was all, it, it wasn't just a joyful response on the inside. There was also worshipful obedience outwardly. It seems like Ezra's rubbing off on them. Remember what we learned about Ezra in chapter seven? It says he set his heart to study God's word and to do God's word. You see, spiritual renewal brings about not just internal heart change, but also obedience. Doing the word, obeying God's commands, living according to his ways. And, and this obedience, this observance, it wasn't just empty ritual. The, the, again, the point of the booths was to help them remember the Lord. Remember how great and how awesome he is. Remember that he fights for us. And then when they remember this, what's the result? End of verse 17. And there was very great rejoicing. More worship, more, re- more joy, a very great rejoicing. It's almost like the rejoicing is, is growing. It's, it's multiplying every time it's mentioned. And then verse 18, day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast on seven, uh, feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. And in the next chapter, we'll see more response, which is really crucial. Uh, but what I want you to see this morning is that God awakens his people. God awakens his people. Yes, there are walls to build, there are gates to fix. There's, there's work to do. But please understand that the purpose of those things is that so the people can be spiritually renewed. That's the goal. That, that's why we do this. So people can be hungry for God. For, for people to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to, to hear from him, and to clearly understand his word and be transformed by it. And for that to lead us to worship and obedience, and to have a very great joy because of it. For the roofs to come off and the walls to come down so more people can know and worship God and serve their neighbor and rejoice greatly. Friends, do you want that? Why are you here this morning? What are you after? Are you here because... You grew up in church and you were taught, well, this is just what you do. If you are, great. And are, are you here because, and this is just what, it, this is what good living looks like? Or are you here with God's people, united in this space because you are hungry to hear from God? You're thirsty for what he has to say. You're desperate for his presence. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Are, are, are you ready to be filled? Are you ready to be satisfied? Are you hungry and thirsty? And I'm done, um, but I'll say this, and I wanna say this very humbly because I'm aware of all the ways that my heart goes after other things, um, but I'm, I'm growing uh, more and more weary of comfortable Christianity. Are you? I'm growing more and more weary of 
a reasonable response of worship. Um, Mark Sayers says, the future belongs to contenders, not the comfortable. May our church be filled with people who have a hunger for God. Um, And as we close, don't miss out what all this is pointing to, right? Their worship in Jerusalem in Nehemiah 8, it's it's a foreshadow, it's pointing forward. It's pointing forward to the church's worship. And as I've said before, um, our worship that we experience here, worshiping Jesus, it's a foretaste of heaven. It's a little glimmer of heaven, right? It's this glimpse of the new Jerusalem. So, so listen to me. I, I don't want to desire an Asbury type of awakening more than I desire heaven. Revivals are given to make us long for heaven, which is a very good reason to desire revival. Um, may we long for heaven. May, may we hunger for an eternity with our Savior. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. You stand with me and we'll pray. And Father, we, um, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for your faithfulness to us, um, especially your faithfulness when, when we are unfaithful and when our, our, our desires are, we kind of try to fill those up with the things of this world, uh, these things that are meant to point us to you. And Jesus, we thank you for coming for us, for living the perfect life that we could never live and dying the death that we deserve in order to revive us. And we thank you, Lord, for the, the normal work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Um, thank you that, Jesus, you said, it's, it's better for me to live so that I can send another helper, um, that, that this, this church, these people, these hearts are where your spirit abides. And we have you always helping us, leading us, teaching us, correcting us. Uh, but, Lord, we... Uh, we ask you to, to come in a special way. Lord, I ask that you give our church a, a hunger for you, a, a hunger for, for you, that we would, we would uh, say what, what David said, that, that your steadfast love is, is better than life. And so we want to rejoice in you. We want to hunger and thirst for you. We want that to be what we want more than anything in our lives. We confess that we don't always um, we thank you for your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance. Um, do something special with us, Lord. Give us patience. Uh, give us an awareness of, uh, of the working of your spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.